Welcome to the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Don't know whether you saw the news yesterday or not, but yesterday in Allen, Texas, about five miles from where my sister lives, a town where a friend of mine pastors a very large church, uh, what seems like an occurrence that happens every couple of weeks, uh, a mass shooting. Eight people plus the gunmen have died and others still critically injured. The youngest person to die was five years old. And there's something inside of us, it's one of those moments when there's something inside of us that says, God, why did you let that happen? Why, why did you allow such a terrible thing to happen? And today we're gonna talk about those kinds of questions, those kinds of doubts that are, that are tied to these kinds of questions, these kinds of emotions, questions like why do, why do bad things happen to good people and why is there so much injustice in the world and why, why is my life not gone the way that I'd hoped? Why has my life been, why have I experienced so much pain in life? All of these questions really come under this one giant impossible question. Uh, why does a good God allow evil, pain, and suffering? And so we've been in this series, we're wrapping it up today, called Reasonable Doubt. And we began by talking about how Jesus loves it when we just will bring him our honest doubts. He loves to meet us in our doubts. And we've talked about uh, God and science. Now, God's not asking us to check our brains at the door. And then last week, we talked about this whole thing of so many Christians that seem like hypocrites. And we talked about how, how God does call us as his followers to, to live lives con congruent with the per person of Jesus, but we're all in process. We're all in a journey. None of, he is perfect and we are not. And, but, his, but our imperfection does not at all take away from the wonder of who he is. But in some ways, it magnifies it because he is perfect and we are not. But today we're going to talk about this big question, this, this question of why does a good God allow evil, pain, and suffering? And I just want you to know as we kick this off, wrestling with these questions is normal. A recent poll asked, if you could ask God only one question and you knew that he would give you an answer, what would you ask? That is an incredible question. If you knew that you could ask God any question, he'd give you the answer. I mean, the, the first instinct is like, what are the next Powerball numbers? You know, that's like, <laughs> but the biggest answer, the most common response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Uh, David Hume, the Scottish 18th century philosopher, was, was one, to, one of the first to kind of put it in this sort of language, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he, is, if, is he able to but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Why then is there evil? It's really the most universally asked question. As a pastor, senior pastor these last 20 years, one thing I've seen over and over again is, is the reality that, that, that rich or poor, everybody, every family will experience moments of incredible pain and suffering. And we all ask this question. We ask it after every terrible natural disaster. 
We ask it after every mass shooting like yesterday. We ask it after every time a child is diagnosed with a terrible illness. I have a nephew and uh, he was born healthy. The first couple of years of his life seemed just fine. When he was three years old, they realized he can't jump. But nobody was concerned as our gene pool doesn't lead to great jumping. And, uh, but then when it began to get a little bit worse, they discovered he has muscular dystrophy. His every year since then, he's just gotten worse and worse and worse in a wheelchair since he was 10 years old, been on a feeding tube like eight years now. He's 22, weighs 67 pounds. He will likely die this year and that will be a mercy putting him out of incredible suffering. And when you see a child diagnosed with an illness like that, there is this thing in us that says, why would a good God let that happen? It may be, the, the, I think it's this question that leads to doubts, may be the toughest question, because I think it is the most universal and it is the most personal. In 2002, it was a year after we had moved from Dallas, where I had been a youth pastor those previous four years, moved to Colorado to start a church. We'd been gone from the church about nine months. And every year of those four years, I was the youth pastor. Every year we would take these kids to youth camp. Every year we would charter a bus to take the kids to camp. And so now that we were gone, they had a new youth pastor, was doing the thing they'd always done, chartered a bus to take all these kids to youth camp. And then we got a phone call in Colorado that there'd been a terrible accident with that bus. Four of those teenagers that had been in our youth group had died, dozens more in the hospital. We immediately left Colorado, drove all night to go to Dallas to do funeral after funeral after funeral. And it was one of the saddest weeks of my whole life. And you're like, oh my gosh, these teenagers were on their way to youth camp. Why in the world would God let that happen? And we've all had these moments in our life where we just asked this question and asking this question is normal. I want you to know this, wrestling with these questions is biblical. The Bible never shies away. The, the, the Bible never shies away from the fact that we live in a world filled with evil, pain, and suffering. The Bible starts with explaining how pain and suffering entered into the world in Genesis chapter three. We see this whole idea that God created everything perfect, but one of the great gifts he gave us was free will, and our first parents chose to sin, introducing pain and suffering in the world, and then this sin pattern has just been continuing ever since, and the rest of the Old Testament is story after story of people continuing to sin and hurt one another and bring more and pay, more pain and suffering into the world, and, and so we, we see it with Adam and Eve in the fall, then the next thing we see is the murder of, of Cain and Abel, then we see the world gets in even more wicked in the time of Noah, more pain, more evil, more suffering. Then we see it at the Tower of Babel. We even see it in the heroes in the Old Testament, that even, even the, the heroes, even, even guys like Abraham that the whole world looks up to, it was where you see him just, just making his own mistakes, his own sins, bringing more pain and suffering into his own life and into the lives of others. Then we see Egypt's oppression of Israel and God delivering them from that suffering. The Bible does not avoid this question. Most religions try to. See, it's, it's, we see it as very much the theme of the book of Job, this idea of evil, pain, and suffering. Why would God allow it? And over and over, we see people asking God this question in the Bible. In Job 19.7, it says, though I cry out violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. 
Job is saying, God, everything around me is, is, is wrong and terrible, and I'm begging you to help here. What, where are you in all this? He's asking these questions. The book of Habakkuk starts that way, Habakkuk 1, 2. How long? We see the, this phrase a number of times in the scriptures. We even see it all the way in the book of Revelation. How long, O Lord? God, how long is the world going to be like this? How long is there going to be so much evil, pain, and suffering? How much longer are there going to be mass shootings every couple of weeks? How much longer are little kids going to get diseases that, that, that take away their life? How long, oh Lord, about, he says, must I call for help, but you do not hear? God, where are you in all this? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. God, where are you? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why is everything around me so terrible? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Why, are you, why, why is there so much injustice? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife is ongoing. It's normal to ask these questions. Psalm 13, one, this same phrase. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I'm, I'm suffering here. Life's harder than I thought. How much longer is it gonna be like this? Next verse. How long must I wrestle in my soul with sorrow in my heart each day? How long will my enemies dominate me? Why Is life gonna just be this hard for the rest of it? My, and then Psalm 22, one, the psalmist, right, the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my words of groaning, asking these questions, why is there so much evil, pain, and suffering? It's biblical to ask. We see in Psalm chapter 73, if you have your Bibles, go over to Psalm 73, verse one. First service that year for the Bible was a little bit weak, but I was like, I did just spend 10 minutes talking to you about evil, pain, and suffering. It puts a little bit of a damper on the room. But you guys still came through. <laughs> psalm 73, we see this psalm by this hero of the faith, this guy named Asaph. Asaph is a unique character in the Old Testament. He was the chief worship leader of the people of Israel. He was also a priest. He was also a prophet. He writes 12 Psalms in the Bible. This guy is a spiritual heavyweight. He's big time stuff here. And let's look at this Psalm 73 verse one. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. Here's what he's saying. He says, I know in my head that God is good, but, I've, but I, I feel like I'm about, to, I'm about to slip in my faith. He says, I'm wrestling with these doubts. I know it in my head, but it doesn't feel that way inside of me. He says, I nearly lost my foothold. Why? I'd envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. A way that you can know that you're wrestling with depression or discouragement is if all of your problems look massive and everyone else's lives look awesome. And so Asaph's saying, hey, oh, these people that are wicked doing the wrong thing, they never get sick, their wife never fights with them, they never have a bad day. So he's, he's looking at things through a, a picture that's not quite real. Their bodies are healthy and strong, they're free from common human burdens, they're not plagued by human ills, Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. 
They scoff and speak with malice and arrogance. They threaten oppression. He's saying, God, why is there so much evil, pain, and suffering? Why are all these people that are doing all the wrong things hurting everybody? Why is their life better than mine when I'm just trying to serve you? I'm trying to write worship songs. I'm trying to encourage your people here, yet everyone that's hurting everybody, their life looks better than mine. Why is there so much injustice is what he's saying. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the most high know anything? Asaph's saying, God, they're mocking you. He says, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, man, maybe, it's, maybe this hasn't been worth it at all. God, maybe living for you just hasn't been worth it. Maybe I would be better if I was doing the wrong things because their life looks better than mine. God, I'm doubting. I'm in a moment of doubt and discouragement and depression. God, are you even there? Are you even good is what he's saying. He's saying, all day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. He's saying, God, my life just feels hard. It feels like every day's harder than the one before. Every day I'm experiencing pain and punishment and, and it just all feels so bad. Then he see verse 15, Asaph's beginning to have a little turning point. He says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. What he's saying is this. If, all, if everybody else knew the terrible thoughts in my head, they would look at me totally differently. Have you ever had a moment like that? Well, you're like, man, if people could read my mind right now, I'd be in jail. <laughs> he says, man, am I up in front of everybody leading all these thousands of people in worship? If they knew what's going on in my heart, where I'm like, man, why are the wicked prospering? Why is my life so hard? Where is God in all this? If they knew that I was on the verge of just turning my back on God, he says, man, it, it would have destroyed them. It would have rocked them. It, they wouldn't have known how to handle it. Verse 16 he says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. And maybe you're in a moment like that, where just as you think about the evil pain and suffering in the world globally, or maybe the evil pain and suffering up close to you, or the evil pain and suffering that you personally are experienced, that, that when you think about it, it troubles you deeply. And, and here's what we're, what we're gonna see with Asaph. Well, we, we, let me show you this next verse. He says, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. See, whenever we're in a moment of depression and discouragement and doubt, we have, we have two choices. It can be, we can do what Asaph did and we can take it as a moment to step towards God. He says, it all discouraged me deeply until I went to church. He said, until I entered the sanctuary of God, he takes this step towards God. See, what happens a lot of times when we're in a moment of discouragement, depression, or doubt is our instinct can be to take a step away from God. But Asaph takes a step towards God, and then his whole perspective changes. Let me show this to you. He says, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. What he's saying is, I realize, God, that you are a God of justice, and that these people that look like they're doing everything wrong, hurting everybody weaker than them, causing all of this pain and destruction, and mocking you, their life looks better than mine, but God, I see that you really are one who one day will bring justice. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you rise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And then he's, but then he gets a clear picture of himself. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was so senseless and ignorant. 
I was a brute beast before you. Here's what he's saying here. He's saying, God, I was so hurt and so discouraged and so depressed and so filled with doubt. He says, I wasn't able to see anything clearly. I wasn't able to see other people clearly. I wasn't able to see myself clearly. I wasn't able to see you clearly. He said that my heart was so bitter that I just became ignorant. I was like a brute beast. All of my thoughts, they just weren't there. I was out of my head is what Asaph is saying. Have you ever had a moment like that where you're so filled with pain, discouragement, depression, and doubt that you're just out of your head? Asaph's saying that. He says, I was, I, I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. He's recognizing that God never left him. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. See, everything changes. He's got this fresh perspective. He takes his doubt, discouragement, and depression, presses into God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all of your deeds. So it's biblical to have these kinds of questions. Be honest with God about what you're seeing and how you're feeling. Asaph begins by just unloading all of this honesty that everything in the world looks terrible. His life feels terrible. God feels a million miles away. Be honest with God about what you're feeling and ask God to help you see yourself, everything else, and him from his perspective. Here's the third thing and we're done. Contrary to our instincts, wrestling with these questions can actually build your faith. See, the Bible, see, a lot of people think that it that would, would tell you that this, this question of why is there evil in the world is why they, they don't believe in God or they don't believe in, in Jesus. They're not a Christian. And, and, and that is, that, that's a, a common thing people say. But I would make this claim that I believe these questions actually create a compelling um, evidence for faith. See, the Bible explains the origin of evil, pain, and suffering better than any alternative worldview. This whole idea that God has gifted us with free will and, and then we, we chose with our free will to bring sin into the world, which brings brokenness into the world and, and all of the things that, that people, either directly or indirectly, are the reason that there's evil pain and suffering in the world, that the world was, is, was broken by our rebellion against God. And, and the Bible explains the origin of evil, pain, and suffering better than any alternative worldview. See, how, how, how does someone that doesn't believe in, in God explain evil and pain and suffering? The Bible explains why evil, pain, and suffering feels so bad, because it was never supposed to be that way. Why when we see great evil, when we, when we, see, when we see great pain, when we see great suffering, that thing in us, that says it, it shouldn't be that way. It's because it was never supposed to be that way. The Bible reveals a God who chose to enter into our suffering. See, there, there's Christianity is alone among all the world religions with this claim that God 
willingly chose to become a human for the purpose of experiencing human suffering. That, 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 he, oh, that he knows firsthand what despair is like and what, what rejection is like. And, and he knows himself what loneliness looks like and poverty and betrayal and bereavement and torture and death. That Christianity of all of the world religions, no other religion makes the claim that God chose to become human and then experience human suffering. The Bible gives hope for the end of human suffering, evil and pain. Are there any Lord of the Rings big nerds in here? Any fans of Lord of the Rings? Anybody such a fan that you have a tattoo for it? Anybody? Anybody have a Lord of the Rings tattoo? I was hoping someone did, I'd bring you up on stage no matter where it was, you were about to show it. And so uh, <laughs> at, at the end of the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, as he thought, but alive. And Sam cries. He says, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And as followers of Jesus, the answer in Christianity is yes. Things aren't the way they were meant to be, and things aren't the way that they one day will be. One day there will be no evil, pain, and suffering. One day Jesus will make all things new. And, and, but I would tell you this, and I wanna challenge you to think hard for about the next seven minutes, if you can. The fact that we have these questions can actually point us to God. See, the thing in us that says when presented with evil, pain, and suffering, the thing that says this ought not be this way, sickness and death ought not happen, mass shootings ought not happen, kids should not starve to death and die, it ought not happen. That there's, there's this thing that, that, that's this clue inside of us, it was never meant this way, and, and I believe it had, does a better job of pointing us towards God than away from God. See, if there wasn't a God, and all of this was just a material accident, it would be foolish to expect there to be any right or wrong. It'd be foolish for there to be this sense of it would ought not be this way. Well, in a world where everything's a giant accident, there is no ought and there is no right. That, that there's, there's the fact that we know intuitively when we hear about a mass shooting, when, when, we, when we see human suffering, when we see incredible evil, the fact that there's something inside of us that says this is not the way it should be. This is not right. It ought not be this way. It, it shows that God has placed eternity in our hearts, that there must be something better. There must be something right. You see this, I acknowledge this idea. That, that indeed it's a difficult question for, as Christians to wrestle with. Why, why would a good God allow this evil pain and suffering? And our, and, our, and our best answer is this idea that he gave us this gift of free will and we've handled it poorly. And with that, it broke this perfect world and made it incredibly imperfect. But the question is much harder for an atheist. You see, as Lewis describes how he had originally rejected the idea of God because of the cruelty of life. Then he came to realize that evil was even more problematic for his new atheism. He realized that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than one against it. Let me read you this quote from C.S. Lewis. My argument against God 
was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of, quote, just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. See, this idea of of rejecting belief in God because of evil, pain, and suffering, this idea inside of us that people ought not be excluded or die of hunger or experience oppression, it totally goes against this idea of materialism and naturalism where, where everything's just an accident of natural selection. Because natural selection depends on the strong killing the weak. That's what it's all about. When you're, when you ever been snorkeling and, or scuba diving and you see a big fish eat a little fish? And like, did you shed a tear? Like, oh, what a terrible injustice. The strong have taken advantage of the weak. It ought not be this way. Now you're like, that's just the circle of life, baby. That's just the way it goes. That's natural selection in action. That's survival of the fittest in action. But when we see the strong oppress the weak, that thing inside of us that says it ought not be this way, that's unjust, that's evil, that's not okay, that's this hardwiring, this image of God hardwiring that says that that this is more than an accident. This is more than materialism. This is more than naturalism. This is more than just natural selection playing out. The, the, The person that doesn't believe in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice. Christopher Hitchens, the, uh, the famous atheist that passed away a, a few years ago, wrote a bunch of books, one of the, the prominent new atheists. He had, had the uh, intellectual integrity to acknowledge without Christianity, human rights don't even make sense. He referred to human rights as a Christian myth. That, that in a world that's based, where everything's an accident, everything's materialism, everything's naturalism, everything's natural selection and survival, the fittest, human rights don't make sense at all. The great uh, Christian philosopher, one of, maybe the greatest Christian philosopher in the last 50 years, Alvin Plantinga said it this way. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how there can be such a thing if only if there, there could be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus no way to say that there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. See, if there is not a God and natural selection, survival of the fittest is all there is, our great concern with evil, pain, and suffering really don't make any 
sense. And so I really do believe the fact that we wrestle with these things is not only is, is it normal, not only is it biblical, I think wrestling with these things deeply can ultimately grow our belief in, 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 in God and in, this, and in the story of Christianity that explains the origin of evil, pain, and suffering, that explains a God who chose to willingly engage our evil, pain, and suffering of this world, and that one day he's going to take it all away, and that it's because he stamped us with his image, and he's created us to reflect himself. That's why we even have these thoughts. It ought not be this way. I wish it wasn't this way. It all just feels so wrong. It really is evidence of the Christian story. To wrap this up, I would be remiss. I, I've heard stories of, 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 and talked to some of you who have uh, been here these last few weeks as we've been talking about doubt and, and that some of you, uh, a lot of you, are, would identify as followers of Jesus, but that you still wrestle with these things as a part of your Christian journey. But, but I've been able to chat with some of you who, who have said, hey, you know, this has been really good because I've not been sure. I've not really been sure where I'm at on this whole God thing and this whole Jesus thing, but as we've been talking uh, about how Jesus is not scared of our doubts and bringing our doubts to him, and, and, and we've been talking about all of these sources of doubt, whether science or hypocrisy or the problem of evil, I wonder if for some of you, over these last few weeks, maybe it's even been part of a longer journey that you've been in on just wrestling with the claims of Jesus, I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity. Some of you, I, I believe, through the last few weeks or the last few months have, have come to a spot where you're ready to say, you know what, I think I believe. I, I think I believe enough to, to place my faith and trust in the person of Jesus. It doesn't mean I'm never gonna doubt again, and when I doubt, I'll just be like that father talking to Jesus that says, Jesus, I believe but would you help my unbelief? But I wonder if some of you today would say, you know what, I'm ready. I'm ready to cross over this line and begin to consider myself a follower of Jesus. I'm ready to give my life to Christ. I just wanna give you a chance to do it. Why don't we just pray together? Some of you might've heard stuff like this before, but it's never really clicked in your head and in your heart. Some of you, the last few weeks or last few months have been among the first times you've really heard some of these things and thought about some of these things and wrestled with some of these things, but a light has gone on where there's something inside of you that knows, you know what, this is true. And not that I don't have any doubts, not that I'll never doubt again, but that this is true enough. for me to place my faith and trust, my confidence, my hope in the person of Jesus. And there's something inside of you that knows it's true, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he willingly chose to live the perfect life that we never could. All of us find ourselves sinful. All of us find ourselves broken on the inside. And he chose to die the death, taking the punishment that I deserve and you deserve, dying in our place. He rose from the dead, conquering our greatest fears and enemies. 
And one day he's going to come again. Deal with all evil, pain, and suffering and make all things new. And there's something inside of you that says, I, I, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Died in my place, rose again. And I want to live my life as his follower for the rest of my life. And if that's you this morning, you say, I, I, I wanna give my life to Christ. I want to become a follower of Jesus. If that's you this morning, I'm gonna pray a prayer out loud. And you can pray something like it in your heart. It's not even about the words or saying a prayer. It's really just about your heart just crying out to God. Sometimes it can be powerful to look back on a moment where we know we made the choice to give our lives to Christ, to become a follower of Jesus. So you could pray something like this. I'll pray it out loud. You could pray something like it silently in your heart. God, I need you. And I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe that he lived the perfect life that I never could. And I believe he died on the cross for my sins, taking my place. And I believe that he rose from the dead. And God, I believe that Jesus is my only hope. And I don't wanna keep living life where I'm in charge, doing my own thing, going my own direction. God, I really wanna give Jesus the steering wheel of my life. I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. So Father, even right now, I ask that you would come and live inside of me and take control of me in the person of your Holy Spirit. So Father, as we wrap up this series, we wrap it up just as we began, just thinking about that dad with the son that was sick, talking to Jesus, saying to Jesus, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this. And you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.